And then I went and did some investigating of publicly sourced documents. And I saw on the tax statements and such, to be kind, irregularities, to be honest, outright fallacy. And that was just part of it. That was Brian McCabe, New York cop, Irish community leader, leading the charge to save a New York Irish icon. And I'm John Lee. And I'm Martin Nutty. Welcome to another episode of Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation. This episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by Ireland of the Welcomes magazine, celebrating 70 years of Irish history, tradition, culture, and community with outstanding photography and inspired writing. Get Ireland of the Welcomes delivered to your door or give a gift subscription and keep the Irish legacy alive for generations to come. Subscribe today online at irelandofthewelcomes.com. Hey, everybody, this is Martin Nutty, and welcome to another episode of Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation. And I'm joined here in our studio by John Lee. A happy new year to you, John. Happy new year, Martin Nutty. You know, I'm listening to your voice, which is always a a pleasure, but today it has a little more of an Irish sound to it. Where did you pick that up? Yeah, I just got off the plane on uh, Monday uh, after a week in Ireland, so I was practicing my uh, Dublin accent, so I probably uh, stepped back a couple of bits from my New York, my Irish New York version or Mid-Atlantic version. But enough about me. Let's talk about uh, who we've got coming up on the podcast. Martin, never enough about you. Well, today we have the quintessential New York Irish cop. That's if your image of that cop is a gentleman who rose up through the ranks from walking the beat to becoming a NYPD detective bureau commander. He's a security professional who works to secure the peace in Northern Ireland, a quiet leader in our Irish American community here in New York. And he's a man at the center of a major Irish controversy in New York, the potential demise of the 125-year-old gem of Irish America and in many ways, an uncut gem, the American Irish Historical Society. Brian McCabe, welcome to Irish Stew. Thank you, John. That's very, very kind of you. Uh, just a point of clarification, I was the commanding officer of the, in the Detective Bureau of the Manhattan South Homicide Squad. But, uh, you know, when I, when I gave the introduction, I was going to say, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> so I uh, am... Yeah. But thank you so much for your very kind introduction. And it's great to talk to two, two old friends again who are, who are pretty much aware of everything that's been going on with the AIHS since it started. There's a lot of, um, I, th- I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about exactly the process that took place and how, mm-hmm. um, how, how uh, involved it really was. Uh, many people are of the... Uh, have the impression that it pretty much started with the sale being the the attempt to sell the building being announced um but in reality it started well before that uh, well brian a- let, let's let's hold that thought a minute because we, we do want to find a little bit more about you before we focus in on the american irish historical Society <laughs> and some of the other amazing stuff you've done so let me kind of set the scene here we're going to learn learn more about this and really focus in on this important story happening right now in New York. But 
I want to ask you a question that's really at the center of what we do here. We have the global Irish nation conversation. Mm -hmm. We look at new ways to look at Irish identity. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to come back to you with a word that I've heard you use. Brian, what does Patty Wackery mean to you? Well, first of all, uh, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to speak of other things. It's just that this this cause has been all-consuming for the <laughs> last few years, and we'll get to the end of it. Patty Wackery, uh, you know, it's, I, I try to be a little circumspect as, as I age. Uh, Patty Wackery would have been something that I was I would be embarrassed about. Um, Patty Wackery would be, uh, to, to a lot of people, who want to, um, who, who do not have uh, a clear understanding of Irish America, um, and, and at times the embarrassing behavior of some people who identify as Irish American um, without a real appreciation of their heritage or culture, uh, they could get involved in patty whackery, which is kind of, uh, it kind of feeds into the narrative of people who have always disrespected the Irish, whether at home or uh, in the diaspora, as being somehow um, uh, less sophisticated, um, uh, less worthy of attention, um, and people who are just, they, they have wonderful music, and they tell great stories and all of that, but at the end of the day, they don't need to be given the respect that a nation of, our, the, the, of ours uh, has earned through, uh, through, actually, millennia. So Patty Wackery is kind of that... That uh, stage Irishman type thing, taking the mick out of somebody, reinforcing negative stereotypes. You see it every St. Patrick's marching season when the uh, when the commercial interests try to hawk um, just this disrespectful T-shirts about mm. drunken Irishmen or Irish women and uh, associating that with our with with our national and our cultural identity. So I, I wasn't a fan of Patty Wackery. Then, now, on the other side, and, and there are other other groups, and one of the beauties of growing up in such a multicultural, in such a diverse city as I did in New York and being able to serve all communities in New York, is that one of the things that I've noticed, um, and I can give a little, a little leeway to people who engage in some good-natured Patty Wackery amongst the tribe. You know, you could just just to have us have some fun. I could see that happening. But as we're presented to the world, um, Patty Wackery is something that's done a disservice to us for generations, in my humble opinion. Brian, speaking of tribes, mm -hmm. I understand you're part of a tribe of 14 McCabe's originally. Uh, so... Tell me a little bit about those early days. Where were they? Your dad's name was Francis, I believe. Your mother's name was Audrey, I think. That's right, Martin. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, God rest their souls. Wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful people. I mean, and you talk about the epitome of, of uh, Irish in America, or Irish, actually not Irish in America, but Irish Americans, about a, um, uh, and in particular, Irish Americans of the Catholic faith tradition. Uh, just wonderful people. And, uh, thank you for mentioning my mom and dad. Yeah, I, I had, um, what would most people today would consider a, a very unique experience. But at the time, uh, when I was born and I was the seventh son, um, which some people say explains some behavior. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, the reality was that, 
it wasn't as rare as people would think. We did have a very large family by any standard, but we weren't alone in that. And, uh, you know, as, as society has developed and as our uh, community has evolved as well, it's just much, much, uh, much less common to have a large family of five, say, which I have. I have five great kids. So, um, yeah, I, I had a great experience growing up in that um, easily identifiable of the era, um, Irish Catholic mode, urban Irish Catholics. We were New Yorkers. We were Americans of an Irish heritage that we never, never let go of. Uh, there's a lot of misconception about the Irish American community. And we do, we were raised in the tradition um, to, uh, to fully understand how important our heritage is to know about our history, to know about the history of, of, of our nation in the, the United States, how important that was, but also our place in that and what we did to, to uh, make this country achieve the, the heights that it did. And also our own history, our history uh, in Ireland, uh, history. One of the things that, that I find at times uh, difficult uh, to countenance is when I hear people who claim to have an Irish heritage um, disparage new, newly arrived immigrants or not have the type of compassion for people uh, when I think that as a defining immigrant experience, the Irish in this country as the outsiders, particularly the Catholics as outsiders um, and, and frankly oppressed people, is something that rather than once, once we've reached a certain level in our society, um, it's, it's one that should actually encourage us to be more compassionate to new people who are newly arrived and recognize that shared experience. Um, and, and, and actually one of the things I thought the Irish, the American Irish Historical Society was that that building on Fifth Avenue was a beacon to all who came, the Irish and those who came after us. So I was raised with that in a family of 12. Um, uh, my, which, which believe me, we had, there, there, there were 14 of us. Um, my brother, my brother Dennis had been born. He was profoundly disabled and he passed away within a year. And my mother also had a, uh, a stillborn daughter. But those, those souls in my mother's eyes were still very much with us. Um, but growing up with 12, growing up with 12 was fun, you know, in a way. <laughs> I mean, we were, uh, there was a lot of sharp elbows and, uh, there were eight brothers and four sisters, which my sisters always saw as some type of, cosmic equation that would require two of us to equal equal one of them <laughs> but uh yeah there were there were 12 of us um and we we originally um well my the immigrant part of my family one of the beautiful things about and what maintained our our um our connection to our culture um this is prior to jet flight back and forth and what but to me, to to develop to be part of a massive group of people who developed into a um, an Irish based in America, but still a very separate uh, subculture um, that is neither Irish nor American. It's a distinct. Um, uh, it has some distinct traits, and one of those things was our parishes, our you, you know playing in the streets, our our bumping up against other ethnicities and, uh, you know, everybody defined themselves by that and not necessarily in a pejorative way. It was just this whole urban mix and it went on for generations. Where'd you grow up, Brian? I was born in Brooklyn. Uh, my, my family was born in, most of us were born 
uh, in Brooklyn. Um, but then like, uh, the house just seemed to be like bursting at the seams. <laughs> so we then, we then moved just down the other side of the Brooklyn border into Queens into like South Ozone Park. And we, uh, we lived in a, a three, three story house there. The top story was the barracks for all of the, uh, all of the guys. Um, the, the second, the second story was the front was, my uh, parents' room. The middle was the oldest brother in the house at the time, who was also the first line of defense in a very dicey neighborhood where we grew up. Um, and then the rear, the rear bedroom on the second floor was my sister's. And then downstairs we had the usual living room and dining room, kitchen, and pantry. So many, many people from outside of the family who would be it would be overnight guests. You never know who would be waking up in the morning in your house. I just want to mention I've spent in total several years of my life in South Ozone Park, Queens, working at Aqueduct Racetrack. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. The, he had a big A. Uh, <laughs> I worked in a bar called the Winner's Circle. Across I the know. <laughs> so let me ask you, Brian, about uh, that deeper background, right? As I understand your... I'm not sure if it's your McCabe line, but they came over on, on Black 47 on that actual 1847 year. Um, how much did you know about that deep background growing up? Because a lot of Irish families wanted to put that behind them, and they didn't want to know anything about it. So was that different in your family? It, it was. It was. One of the things that was... Um we we were not insulated in the sense of being this separate uh, group. We always had generationally. We would have uh, new new arrivals from Ireland marrying into our crowd. But the the, the Flynn side of the family, which is which is which is my uh, great grandmother, uh, we have people from Tyrone and from Leitrim and Carrigallen. Um, but uh, yeah, we had uh, great hunger. Um, Refugees came here, and um, they did well. They they struggled, um, fought in the American Civil War, uh, a father and son. The father being killed, um, and then the son surviving and being involved in um, post Civil War in Irish uh, Irish nationalist causes. Um, but no, we, we were always raised with a cognizance of what the great hunger was. Um, we actually would occasionally, um, have our hands raised in, by well-meaning nuns speaking about, thinking that they were talking about something that was not spoken about enough. But we always kind of, uh, had a, had a little, uh, a little reaction to the idea of it being the potato famine as though, the potatoes, you know, we, we were raised with an understanding that it was a lot more nuanced than that. And the great hunger was not, uh, you know, merely an, a, an act of, uh, unfortunate, uh, uh, natural disaster. So, um, yeah, we, we were raised with our, uh, an appreciation for American, uh, the, the contributions of the Irish in America. Uh, our sacrifice by, by the, 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 the great, great granduncle Thomas Flynn, who did die. Uh, in the Battle of Alusty. Well, actually, he died at Andersonville Prison upon his escape um, after being taken prisoner, wounded on the field in the Battle of Alusty. But we, but that that was just a starting point 
we actually had other people from uh, from different different uh, families and such. But the Flynns and then the McCabe's is Patrick McCabe. This is something I found out relatively recently. It's Patrick McCabe who came. He was born in 1854, but he came over in 1881, and the the building is gone now. But he had a um, a saloon on. Uh, uh, South 4th Street in Kent Avenue uh, by the Brooklyn Navy Yard um, on the waterfront. And um, I, I came up with a, with a, news, a newspaper account from back in the day. I think it was 1901. If you guys would know that down there by the Williamsburg Bridge and all was the Domino Sugar uh, factory. But that was where smaller uh, sugar refineries and where, where, the, where, the, where the boats would come in from uh, Central America with sugar cane and need to be processed and all. So the sugar workers, it was uh, a big industry down there at the time. And as they were trying to organize that with the labor unions, uh, as it turns out, uh, Patrick McCabe saloon was the headquarters of the union crowd that got busted up uh, in this one particular newspaper account by, uh, by the bosses goons uh, who were uh, some of whom were, on the job, they would be, they would PD, and uh, in the account, my uh, this this uh, ancestor of mine couldn't believe it. He must have been an offshoot or something, but he got locked up for hitting a cop um, <laughs> as they were breaking up this union meeting. Um, and I think his I think his excuse for it was that he didn't he didn't mean to hit the cop. He was trying to break up the fight, so. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was, so, and then it continued through there, through the first world war. We have people serving that, the second world war, the depression. And we always kept that, that very, very uh, close identification. And for that matter, um, I have a great photo from back in the day of my grandfather, Mike McCabe, um, and my, my, uh, my uncle, um, and, and, uh, and a cousin. Um, at, at the the, the St. Patrick's Day Parade um, in 1916, uh, which was, of course, uh, just prior to, and there was a lot of a lot of um, of concern, uh, knowing that something might be going on in Ireland. There was a lot of political activity in New York to support um, the Irish Republican movement uh, in during the First World War, and ultimately uh, culminated in the Easter Rising. Uh, and it's great to have that kind of touchstone. They they have, uh, they they had banners and such. The, the uh, as they posed for a photo at the, on St. Patrick's Day there. We kept all the way there. We we were we were constantly educated and 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 encouraged to stay in touch with that aspect of our of our being, and that is the Irish part in our history, particularly how it's, how it related to the United States of America. Brian, uh, you mentioned being on the job, and you mentioned the NYPD. Uh, what what led you there? Was it a family business by any chance, or following the path of friends and relatives? Well, it was it was one of the things that we, you know, pretty much every kid uh, from our background considered some type of uh, municipal work. Uh, my brother Gerard, a uh, very very successful lawyer, labor issues and other things, but he started out as a firefighter. Uh, he was my, one of my younger brothers, one of the twins, uh, but also involved in politics and education in um, the building trades. It's the usual gamut of jobs. 
And I had considered being a cop. We, we didn't have, on my mother's side of the family, there was a line of police, uh, very, very, uh, you know, police captains and inspectors, uh, first grade detectives and such. So I always, we, I was educated in that, but it wasn't, I, I was, I, I was not, a lot of cops came on the job. Um, you know, they come on very early. Uh, in their early 20s or such. But I was already in uh, past my mid-20s when I got sworn in. Um, I had worked in a lot of other areas. Uh, and uh, the city that I grew up in was a dicey place, our neighborhood in, in particular, along with others. Um, I uh, I witnessed a lot of things. And I, 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 I found myself drawn to it. And one of the reasons I was was because of a very close relationship with um, – a, a fellow from the old Ninth Ward in Brooklyn, it was called. It was basically, uh, it was an area where the Donegal crowd uh, kind of settled um, in St. Teresa River Villa Parish, down by Sterling Place, be called now Crown Heights. But at the, in the ward times, that Irish section was called the Ninth Ward. Mm-hmm. They still have a, they still have reunions uh, uh, annually, and they have a great, great connection. But um, my sister Peggy, who just passed away, got arrested in. Um, uh, early in December, um, she was married to a fellow, Jimmy McGuire, great guy, great musician. You guys might remember uh, Patrick McGuire, my nephew, is a great musician himself, has a great following, living in Greece now. Um, but the, back in the day in New York, I mean, you, you couldn't get in, you get into his shows. And he was Jimmy's son. It was that musical uh, trend. My father was a great singer. My sister Mary is a great singer. Uh, I'm a great croaker. But, uh, <laughs> There was this fellow, uh, Tommy Kenny, who was a detective sergeant, uh, and he was married to Jimmy McGuire's sister. So we had a family connection. Um, he uh, it's very interesting. Back in 1973, I fought in the garden in the New York, uh, the Golden Gloves. And we had, uh, there had to be better than a thousand people there just supporting uh, the, the McCabe kid, um, including on one side of the ring, wise guys from East New York. And on the other side of the ring, Tommy Kenny and a bunch of uh, heavy duty detectives who'd be like, you know, that guy, you know, that guy. (laughs) Tommy was a very, very, he wasn't a big guy, but he was a very brilliant, a very intelligent man. Um, And I just, he he epitomized uh, what I thought a cop should be. He's a great detective commander, um, supervisor, uh, special assignment, sergeant of detective squad. Um, involved in some tremendous cases, but he always approached them with a smile. He always had a great way of looking at things, and um, and he, he was all about the service aspect of it as well. But um, so when I did come on the job, he was kind of my uh, rabbi, if you will, and um, I learned a lot from Tommy, and he guided me in ways uh, that that I could never have. Uh, hoped for if I hadn't been associated with him. And although I had a number of opportunities to get involved in different aspects of police work, you know, emergency services or any, any, uh, any of a number of career paths in in an organization as large as the NYPD, there are so many different aspects that you could explore. But I, I always saw my, uh, all I wanted to do was to go out uh, on the street. And I did in, uh, on the West side of Manhattan. Uh, Hell's Kitchen and the Theater District and all that. I had a great experience for many years um, fighting street crime. And then uh, I, I, I thought the culmination of any any street cop's career would be uh, an assignment to the Detective Bureau. 
And I was fortunate enough to achieve those goals. So talk to us a little bit about that transition from the beat cop to becoming a detective. Was that what you would hope to do right from word go, or was that something you learned along the way? I think I want to go this direction. No, thanks. I, I, I kind of think when I decided to go all in, I mean, I, as I said, I had, I had worked in a number of, a number of other things as a young man, um, before I, before I got sworn into the PD, including tending bar in some, in some, uh, very, very uh, interesting places, which I would recommend as, you know, the, the, there is the requirement, the educational requirements for cops these days. I think that six months behind a bar of a busy New York saloon might be one of them as far as learning de-escalation <laughs> and psychological, dealing with people and all of that. It's not the worst way to go about it. But um, I, I actually did uh, want to, I, I saw the logical progression of what I wanted to do as uh, getting becoming a detective. And that started with, I mean, at one point, um, you know, I started as a patrol officer in uniform, loved it, walked uh would walk a beat with uh, my night stick out. I knew all the people, knew the good people. They, I had great, great um, relationships with people. But once again, I came on a little bit older, and I grew up in the city, um, and so I think I was a little, a little more prepared uh, emotionally, psychologically, um, uh, and I kind of had a sense of, uh, of uh, you know, it's a, it's a big, big, uh, tremendous amount of people I'm dealing with on any any particular day, but I had an eye for kind of, you know, who, who was up to no good. And I also developed great relationships with people, residents there who liked, frankly, back in the day, crime was, was rampant. And, and you know, a lot of things we don't have now, all of the surveillance state and all of that, it was a lot of, a lot of, it uh, required a lot of um, hands-on and shoe leather police work to, uh, to to turn that corner, which we did in the 80s and, and, and 90s when we had hit precipitous levels of homicide. I'm very, very saddened, by the way, to see how things for, for ideological purposes are kind of swinging back. I, I don't think ideology should enter into it when working class people can't, can't get from their home to their job and back again without worrying all the time about whether or not they're going to make it. Um, and that was my experience back in the 70s and the 80s. So I, I, I always saw, I mean, it was a lot of fun as well, frankly, uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, chasing people over roofs, tenements, oh, no. down, down uh, you know, down um, fire escapes, uh, the building sites. Uh, uh, the Chris Byrne, uh, you guys might know, Chris Byrne and I were partners in the anti-crime unit. So I had long, long hair and a, a earring and a, and a beard, and uh, I drove a cab, and Chris was my my passenger, and we interrupted a lot of street crime, you know, doing that kind of work. And so the logical progression from that would be, um, you, you, I went from making a lot of a lot of street crime arrests for, for, and it was it was frankly, if you wanted to work, there was no dearth of work to do, and um, so I, I was a very active very active cop. Um, and uh, the, the next step would be uh, to get into an investigative, kind of a, a kind of a, uh, a hybrid from the uh, logical progression from the anti-crime uh, plainclothes into what uh, the, the a step into the detective bureau, which was 
back in the day, the robbery identification program, which was an adjunct of the detective squad where you not only uh, you, you would investigate robberies, street robberies, you would develop patterns. You would know uh, you, you would develop, you know, what, what crew was running and, you know, and we were able to uh, to make arrests. I mean, it always culminates um, the fun part in like putting the bracelets on somebody who's committed these type of crimes. I, I you know, I don't. I, there are things that you can understand as being all right, the guy. The guy stepped. The guy. The guy ran afoul of the law. Doesn't make him a bad guy. And maybe we could. Uh, maybe there are things we could do to save him. This, uh, you know. There were a lot of people, as we used to say, that we unarrested than we arrested back in the day. It wasn't a case of just looking to, to throw people behind bars. But then again, the violent crime that took, that took place back then, the, um, the, the rampant robberies and assaults and stabbings and, and shootings, uh, I, I, there was no, as far as I was concerned, tell it to the judge. You're doing this and we find it. We're going to do it. We're going to, we're going to lock you up. The thing is, though, a lot of people don't understand. And what make, what, what makes it to your point, Martin, that transition is that for a lot of people who were involved in, in, in law enforcement, um, who, who weren't involved or didn't see the, the biggest picture, uh, their involvement, they would hope would end with, with an arrest. Um, but the reality is it ends with a conviction. And you have to make sure you do everything right and that you've got the right person and that it's done in an appropriate manner so that you could have, you could do a great job. And if you cut investigative corners, um, you can lose a case. You could have evidence. Uh, thrown. And uh, so it's about, it's a matter not of finding who you, who, who you need to lock up. The investigation of crime is about establishing the truth of what happened. What happened? And then generally that will put you in a direction where you'll be able to find out who's responsible. You don't want to get tunnel vision immediately upon being advised of a case because you want to get somebody responsible for it. It's a recipe for disaster. So, so that's how I, I proceeded the robbery identification program. And from that, I got a, a detective shield and went into the detective bureau. Then I was picked up by the homicide squad. Um, and then I made, I made, uh, boss and, Went back on patrol for a while, which was a lot of fun. I had, uh, you know, the, the, the usual ratio would be, uh, one sergeant, uh, <laughs> for the, for the squads that you had, um, one sergeant for roughly 10 cops. And at one point I had up to 20 because the commanding officer was like, give this. And usually they were kids who were having some, some trouble in understanding that their job. And uh, I got I got I got great results. I great worked with a lot of great young guys, and I was able to give them. Uh, you know, I supported them. I made sure, you know, do the right thing and make sure you do your work, and nobody else is doing your work for you. And I, I got it back, and uh, so that that was it. And then from a, a period of time at back in patrol um, with uh, as as the the, the sergeant who had a, a squad of patrol people. Um, I went back, I was taken back into the bureau, back into the homicide squad, and ultimately became the CEO of the, of the Manhattan South Homicide Squad. One thought on that. It strikes me that the decision to go into homicide work can't be easy. Um, you see some pretty darn ugly things. Um, it is romanticized, I think, a lot by all sorts of true crime 
TV shows and podcasts. Talk to me about annoying questions about that aspect of your career. Uh, you know, well, you, you just asked one. So. Mm-hmm. I know. That was <laughs> no. the intent. No, 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 Makara. Uh, um, I, I, I'm, I'm joking. I get it, and you, I, you, you, you couldn't be more right. Um, the, 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 the thing is, you, and that's, that's why I think that people from our tradition did well in that job. They did have a, a, an understanding that ultimately there's a lot of tragedy in life, and we rise above it. And what I could do, I mean, it used to be a saying by this fellow Vernon Gebeth who who had for years a uh, homicide course, investigative course, you work for God. You know, this this person is dead. You have to tell their story. You have to bring some comfort to no matter who that person was. I'll give you a classic example. There was a case uh, they called her the West Side job, right, after uh, Central Park and all that. There was a case of this poor young woman. Um, uh, she was murdered uh, and in the back of a, uh, a box truck, the yellow, yellow, uh, yellow van on the yellow truck lines, um, which was down on the, on the, on the west side, south of like, uh, south of 14th Street. So over there before it got all gentrified. And, and um, the press was all over it in a way that was, uh, you know, salacious. Um, it was determined that, uh, she, she, she went from being potentially a, um, a jogger, you know, that uh, a professional person who, once they found out that she was wearing sweatpants, but she wasn't a job. She was a, a prostitute. And then the press dropped it like a hot potato. But we did because we spoke to her mother and her mother was a woman worthy. The, the, the decedent was worthy of respect. But the mother and the family, they, 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 they people who love. And, and so... We had a great, we, 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 it was a great case and we made the arrest and I got a confession from the fellow responsible. And, um, yeah. And, uh, so that, that kind of thing happened often, particularly working in Manhattan South where every homicide, everyone was something that the 20, it was before the 24 seven news cycle, but still it was great media attention. Um, and then it morphed into that and, and they'd be all over it until, it didn't rise to their level of concern, but it's always our level of concern. Right. I'm hearing a lot of uh, tenacity in the kind of work you were doing with the NYPD. Uh, how did that translate as you started to step into other uh, Irish-related things? I, I know you've done a lot of things in the community. You've worked at it from a lot of levels. Tell some of the uh, some of the things that led you up to your role at the American Irish Historical Society. Okay. Oh, Martin, by the way, by the way, in, in, in response to that as well, people are well-meaning. They think, you know, they watch a lot of television, so they think they want to ask you about this, that, or the other thing. And it's all right. It's kind of like, in you know, being a doctor at a cocktail party. And once they find out you're a doctor, you can't have a good time because everybody wants to talk about their maladies. So you, you, you take it in stride. Um, but the... the in, in a curious way, despite my, my family background and my, um, um, my, uh, b- being raised with an appreciation of our tradition, heritage, and culture, um, when I came on the job, I found people like me, uh, very much, um, uh, similar to me, uh, family wise, uh, schooling, 
working class neighborhoods in the city and um and they they also had uh to to one degree or another they were irish american either first generation or even three or four generations they were still part of our same community and we celebrated that in a way that i found i found frankly uh, stirring and uh, it attracted me greatly like the uh, the, 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 the emerald society the pipe band i marched proudly in uniform for 30 years on the in, uh, down up fifth avenue and we'd march past the american irish historical society and even though um you know we would see that uh it was a symbol it was an iconic symbol and a lot of people were like you know it was good to see the flags flying and we'll see that again very shortly but also hey Brian, hey Brian before before yeah. just we we keep talking about the american irish historical society you know just mention the significance of the address what this thing looks like well it's a bozop building um that's just, it's, it's phenomenal. It's directly across the street from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's at 991 Fifth Avenue at 80th Street. And it is, it's just a, a, a very impressive, lovely, uh, old, old, uh, building. Um, and, and it was uh, facing Fifth Avenue. The parade would pass it every year. I used to say that the bookends of the, of the, uh, St. Patrick's Day parade had historically been, uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral down on the, at the south end, only a couple of blocks north of where the parade actually started, and the American Irish Historical Society, where a couple of blocks beyond that was where it would end. Um, and, and that's the, that's a very salient point because I uh, became known uh, in in uh, in well, you know myself and my family were involved in uh, a lot of Irish community. Um, we, my father, founded the, the Irish American Association of Queens. New York. I mean, I was marching in parades when I was six and seven years of age uh, behind a uh, a banner identifying our community. Um, and it was good to find that I uh, that I I also had like minded people, uh, people of a shared tradition. One of the beautiful things about the NYPD is that even as the, the demographic changed and more people came in, that the um, the uh, organizational ethos still very influenced and very proudly of a, of a Celtic tradition, including the pipe band playing for everybody uh, and, and how, how uh, evocative that is. But as part of that, I also got involved um, in, 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 in a number of, uh, of uh, fundraising. And I became to get, and my whole family did, we have very accomplished and very proud of my brothers and sisters and what they did. And everybody had, their own way, their own route, but we all were very tight as well. Um, but me being in the, the, the having the profile that I had, and I, I don't mean to say this in some kind of twenty twenty three celebrity type culture thing, but I, I was getting very well known in our community because I was a Manhattan South detective and homicide detective and then detective boss. Um, so my Fat head would be seen on the six o'clock news regularly, you know, and so it became kind of a, a recognized. But also, I, I had been asked to be involved um, once the peace process started in in the uh, early nineties, um, and I I was uh, assigned to that. Uh, I provided uh, close personal coverage for Jerry Adams and uh, for Martin McGinnis, dear friends, and. Uh, also, also uh, other others who, who were coming over. I was kind of the person 
um, who was uh, um, recognized even on the job and in at City Hall as having that type of connection. So that kind of bolstered um, my my involvement. Um, uh, one of the one of the things that led me to the American Irish Historical Society, frankly, was I had been asked to join um, because of that uh, that uh, posture that I had, or the the at the, at the time in the nineties, and being involved in uh, Rocky Sullivan's bar, my old partner Chris Byrne and Patrick Farrelly, um, which was a great in, in the mid nineties, mid to late nineties on Lexington Avenue, it was a great center. For I mean, at the time, everything Irish was happening it was very important. Um, the culture, the music, the dance, and and Rockies was a place where everybody came from. Like uh, from the Scotsman uh, Rod Stewart over there to to at, at, at like six o'clock in the morning to watch a, a Glasgow Celtic game. To uh, pretty much everybody, everybody, uh, it was just phenomenal. Um, you know. Uh, so, so being being known and being being recognized in that community, um, I, I was asked to get involved in the AIHS. I was asked to. There had been some problems with people going to the door, and, but they really wanted me to utilize my um, my connections, uh, whatever whatever um, influence I could. When they decided to end the parade a block south of the society. Which uh, everybody felt was, uh, you know, it should have been included in. They used a cookie cutter approach, and so that's what got me engaged in it to the degree because I was working on that. And we got some concessions from the city, and we, and uh, actually, just before everything fell apart at the society, we had a commitment to bring significant aspects of the parade beyond the society and have them break down there. So, but that was pretty much it, and then. Um, and I got to know, and I got to understand what was actually happening there, and what was what was at risk if uh, if steps weren't taken to try to reform the society, and then ultimately, um, when our uh, our myself, Jim Normal, Sophie Colgan, our efforts to do so were met not with uh, understanding but with resistance, um, I discovered why. Uh, frankly, a lot of people thought that um, the the effort to save the society began with the announced uh, the proposed sale, but that that had, that had been proposed to me six years before, and I said it's a nonsense. That cannot be done. There's just so much more relevance to that the, the society being where it was and remaining there on Fifth Avenue, um, and so that's what kind of started things. And then I found, then I discovered. Uh, why are they looking? At, I, I just delivered the highest-grossing dinner involving organized labor, their gold medal dinner. Um, shortly before they made a move to oust my leadership team, which was myself, Jim Normile, uh, Sophie Colgan, at being as you guys know, um, who, who did a wonderful job in throwing the doors open, letting new people in. Shaking the dust out, it had been too long, an elite proprietary organization. And we were looking to return it to the people and to everybody who has an appreciation for the Irish contributions to America. I um I found that there were some irregularities that needed to be investigated. Um and that our we we were considered a threat 
to the, the reigning cabal. Um, and so unlike others who were in our position who had uh, reached leadership level, and then when they, you know, there's a honeymoon period, it's like this is beautiful. It's, then you start asking questions. Then you tr- start trying to affect change. Then they were shown the door. Um, the only difference was this was, it, it was beyond uh, the people who had come before and had tried to affect change to whatever degree. Uh, they weren't up for the fight. Um, and uh, they, when they were shown the door, they went out the door. And when, when I was told that uh, I would be shown the door, basically it was told you're either going to resign or we're going to vote you out. So I'm like, so you're giving me the same option that Hitler gave Rommel, right? You're either going to commit suicide or we're going we're gonna to shoot you. So I'm like, you forgot that there's a third option and that you're going to be challenged on this. And, you, and I will go to the wall because this is just too important an issue. Um, and, you know, there are people who, who have said um, that the, uh, the, 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 the gentleman who had been president general for for many years that uh, in the 70s he saved the organization um i i i and i'm one who would have been um i would have accepted that but once i started seeing exactly how things run were run i came to an understanding that he did not save the society he he acquired it and then it became a proprietary interest where the mission of the American Irish Historical Society um, was secondary to their own familial uh, mission and their belief that they, they that it was one and the same, and it frankly was not. And I was concerned about priceless documents that were that were being being allowed just to disintegrate and the collection and all of that. And th- th- once again, to be clear. That um, that investigation is is not over, uh, and it it will continue, and I will make sure that. Uh, and I've got a commitment from the the AG's office. It did wonderful, wonderful work, and I, I've been working with them for four years to see this see see a change in governance. Now we could take a breath and make sure that the mission of the society, and that the board that will um, take. Uh, that will be installed will be appropriate to the mission of the society and to our community. Hey, Brian, you, you mentioned AG and, you know, we, we have a global audience here on Irish stew. So I wonder. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. The attorney general of the state of New York, uh, the, the, the top law enforcement, uh, the official in the state of New York and the second most powerful political position, in the state of New York, Tish James, Letitia James, who is a wonderful person. Who uh, we've got per- personal commitments. Uh, she's total respect for our history about of Irish America. She knows about the the, the New York Irish, and uh, she's just wonderful and very very uh, committed to making sure that um, the right thing is done there. Um, and so there's a transition period now. The prior board has been dismissed. There is an interim board of professionals whose job it is uh, to um, who are engaged by the AG at times when there are, this is, this would fall under the Charities Bureau as a cultural or charitable organization. Um, and their responsibility is, uh, 
the 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 new the new board <clears throat> they wouldn't necessarily even have um the background with the irish issue but they are professionals in 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 um creating a, a baseline and re-establishing an organization and they ultimately will be responsible for what I'm what I'm what I have been told um uh, in meetings with the AG's office will be a transparent process and our community will be respected and and uh, remain at the center of, of what the American Irish Historical Society it would be rather um disingenuous to have the American Irish Historical Society um not uh not respect the wishes of the American Irish community. And so they get that. And we're very, very uh, interested in seeing how this is going to work out. And I have committed myself uh, and I've promised them to be, uh, to be available during this process. So Brian, let me ask you about, uh, you mentioned Tish James and bringing the attorney general of New York into this process. Um, this institution, and I, I was involved with it at your behest uh, from five years ago and spent a lot of uh, nice time uh, in the beautiful townhouse on Fifth Avenue. Um, but my question is, or my observation is this, it is a small organization, not a very large budget. It has, has a beautiful premises that's very valuable. Uh, initially, when the attempt was made to sell it a few years ago, I think it was offered a uh, forty-seven or forty-nine million dollars, uh, which is vastly outstrips its annual budget, as I understand it. Um, given how small this charity is in all the ferment of New York charities, talk to me about how you managed to get the attention of the Attorney General. Um, because I'm guessing that this is not the only charity uh, that, that the Attorney General's office uh, has under its purview that has significant problems that would be akin to what was going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. That, that, that's an excellent question, Martin. Um, well, well, basically, it's this. There, there, the, the society, the building itself had been assessed at like $87 million at some point. Their initial, their, the, their initial ask was some, something, I think, of $55 million. And then in a last desperate attempt to sell it, they had reduced the price. Uh, the bottom line was, once I, once I went to the Attorney General um, in the summer of uh, 2019, was the first was our first meeting. The, the, there was not going to be a sale. What they did was actually they shot themselves in the foot by announcing that sale because it was a lonely struggle for quite a while um, in in trying to get the attention that was necessary. Although the attorney general's office, to their credit, had been involved from day one. Wonderful uh, attorney there. Um, you might you might uh, recognize her middle name, uh, Karen Kunstler Goldman. Was uh, is 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 the deputy chief of the charities bureau, and um, she just she, for our listeners, I'm assuming that that she's related to William. She's William uh, Kunstler. Yeah, she was William Kunstler. Yeah, who is um, like uh, at least in the 80s and 90s when I was here in New York was a guy at the front of any kind of civil rights case. As yeah, far as I he remember, was, he was kind of an iconic figure. 
in the legal Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry. Please go back. No, 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 no. Anyway, anyway uh, uh, Karen Consular Goldman, it, uh, she was responsible for the case, and she started investigating it for, or they doing an inquiry initially. They don't want to get drawn into internecine disputes on the board. So what was needed was evidence. What they forgot was, you know, I, I did have some professional background in developing evidence and scratching <laughs> the surface. And so when I did, when when I saw that the when they when they the time that they made the move coincided with our um, success in getting a new uh, business director in there. Now the business director would have to have access to the books. And once that became a person who was not under the direct control of the ruling cabal, they moved against us. So um, there was a little, uh, you know, they figure, all right, the jig is up now. This is it. It's going to be. I'm like, no, no, no. Why? So you got to always look why. Why make the move now after all of the things that has happened? Why make the move now? And then I went and did some investigating of publicly sourced documents, and I saw on the uh, on tax statements and such um to be kind irregularities to be to be honest outright fallacies um and that was just part of it the governance issue was huge um and and the integrity of the collection which is something near and dear to my heart so when i brought all of this information um it, it started the process in addition throughout the the intervening months prior to uh, the announcement of the sale, um, which I believe was in January or February of 2020, um, the uh, uh, they they were working on it, and uh, um, and they would you know they they were doing it in the methodical and professional way that they do. The what happened, and when I say they might have shot themselves in the foot, I was going down that road before. What happened was they felt an imperative. They better get, they better try to cash in on this building. Now, as I said, I was told years ago, why do we even need this building? I said, well, you need this building because it is exactly where it is. It's a symbol to millions of people who've passed here. And it could be, it could be and should be this iconic monument on Fifth Avenue. As we go into a digital age, we'd love to see all of, all of the archives digitized and that's what needs to be done and have the, and have it used beyond its walls. So we'll, we'll grow that. But, um, the, 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 the problem with raising funds in a society. And like I said, I, I was able to get, um, uh, a, uh, prominent, Terry O'Sullivan, a prominent labor leader, international labor leader. Um, and we were able to raise a significant amount of, amount of money in my in my last year. Um, that that money it covered pretty much operating expenses, but the, the, it, we needed to develop other revenue flows, and we were trying to do that. And quite often, it was either handled maladroitly or it was just shunted aside. Then the other side of the coin was you can't depend on one. One gala dinner per year. That's a thing of the past. We had to do other things. They've thrown this red herring out there that, oh, it was about COVID. Was it was not. COVID might have slowed the process down. Other societies, other organizations at least held the line or thrived through COVID by pivoting and, and thinking creatively. So COVID wasn't the reason they wanted to sell a building. They had always had a plan to sell a building. They wanted to sell the building, use half of the funds raised 
to endow the society, which would have been keeping the old cabal in business for forever, and um, then buying another building elsewhere in the city that simply would not have the gravitas that this one did. Um, so we, we, we came to an understanding that that was always the plan. The AG knew it was always the plan. The AG was not going to countenance a, um, a, uh, a sale while these issues were still under investigation. And then when they did announce the sale publicly and engaged a, a, a high, highly regarded uh, real estate firm to carry the ball for them, that gave us the opportunity. And it also made a lot of people who had been sitting on the sidelines or not willing to commit uh, the opportunity to get engaged. And uh, Sophie and I, I wrote the, um, Sophie and I organized the, uh, the uh, petition, uh, which got 40,000 plus votes or 40,000 uh, plus signatures. Um, we got the attention of, uh, of uh, New York Times. We got the attention, the refocused attention of the AG. And they, they, they didn't need pressure because they were working on it. But this, and it was in response to that that Tish James made very unusual a public announcement on March 17th, 2020, that it was going to be a, um, that she committed to a full uh, investigation. And, and, and Brian, you, you got, you know, you talk about engagement. You really rallied support in all other Irish organizations, all other Irish communities, you know, maybe some organizations that normally wouldn't talk to each other were, were, yeah. were joining to back your this effort. And um, maybe just mention, you know, some of the other, how big this thing became in the community. I, I believe reaching to the Irish government as well. Mm. Well, it did. Actually, the Irish government had been aware of this um, from the, from the beginning, they thought at the time it was inappropriate, uh, as the re representatives of Ireland to be involved in a case that the New York State AG ultimately had authority, uh, authority in. But their good offices are appreciated. Um, but, but yeah, we, we were looking to get the, um, uh, both in Ireland and in New York, but primar primarily here, um, we, we were able to, to mobilize a great group of people. Um, from our political, academic, um, legal, uh, creative, uh, the labor. So we did, we, we did. And I wrote, um, uh, two public letters to the AG that her office received before they were published. Um, but did have the, the signature. In fact, you, my friend, were one of the yes, signatures. Just going to say, in my role as, uh, at that time, president of the Irish Business Organization of New York, I got to sign that as well, which I really, well, I greatly appreciate that. And Martin's always been supportive as well. So we, we were able to get a broad and, and, and we were fighting a certain elitism. Um, so we had people of great renown. Liam Neeson, uh, we did very, very, uh, um, publicly, uh, supported this effort and still does. Um, so the, uh, we were able to do that from what would be, for want of a better term, community leaders, people speaking for organizations, whether it was the GAA or the American Irish um, Legislative Society and the Grand Council of uh, Emerald Societies and oh, many people from academia, many renowned uh, writers and artists um, and our political uh, people from the political side of our um, community. So we, we were able to mobilize 
a great deal of support, not only to stop the sale, but to, to ensure good governance, to reform the society by ensuring good governance. Um, of course, the sale needed to be stopped. That's what mobilized people. They said, this is, they, they are trying to push this. Um, but we, and we were able to, on the one hand, get the community, um, people who have recognized, uh, Gravitas in the community to sign on board with us, as well as, um, uh, 40,000 others, um, whose voices needed to be heard. Um, and, and with that, we were able to also, uh, um, legitimize our struggle and to make it understood that this was no mere squabble among former board members and the, and the sitting board, but an issue of vital importance to the American Irish community. Um, I, I, uh, I'm very, very proud of the fact that people did, did respond to that and we'll continue, we'll continue the struggle until, as we said, we, the, it was about stopping the sale of the building, but the way to do that was to ensure good new governance, uh, have these financial questions answered, um, and to ensure the integrity of the collection. Um, and that's what's still being done, and we'll see that through as well. So, Brian, I'm delighted to hear of the appointment of the interim board to AIHA. American Irish Historical Society. It's easier to say that than the acronym. It is uh, the same problem. And, um, you know, fingers crossed, uh, you know, that transition goes smoothly and uh, that the newly reformed society takes its proper place amongst the kind of more iconic institutions in Manhattan. I think at Luxman House, I think of the Irish Arts Centre, and I think of the American Irish Historical Society as a triangle of yeah. culture uh, that should be kind of working to, working together and kind of promoting the Irish American experience and the Irish experience across this city. And in addition, of course, there's numerous other organizations outside, but within the Manhattan firm, these are the three big ones. Well, I, th- I throw in the Irish rep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Sorry. Well, <laughs> Mayor Culpa. No, no, no. Karen and Charlotte were also essential in this. And they, 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 one of the catalysts for my resistance was a very unfortunate incident involving them with the, uh, on the last night that the, the, the dead 1904, oh, which was eminently suited to that, uh, to that building. Fantastic. Yeah. Unbelievable and performance in space. Very, very, very supportive. And, uh, very grateful for them. So the Irish rep, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that we're actually recording this on January sixth, which is the feast of the Epiphany, which is actually the date that the dead, the oh, short wow. story by James Joyce, actually takes yeah, exactly. place. Exactly, selling, oh, wow. Uh, wow. celebrating Women's, Women's Christmas, in Women's <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> that's correct. Women's Christmas in Ireland, and also sadly, um, the anniversary. Uh, of a, a very terrible event in our history here yeah. in Washington. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, we got a lot. It, it is, you can see, I still have my, my tree up over there. It's still mm-hmm. there. This mm-hmm. is the last day. We, we do the 12 days and then ah, that's good. We'll, and it'll be done. So, unfortunately, we're getting to that uh, time in the podcast uh, where we have to introduce our friend, uh, Seamus Plug. Um, so this is your opportunity to kind of plug something that is near and dear to your heart. 
Well, since since this is the time to do that, I will do two. One is, of course, the American Irish Historical Society. We need our community um, and people who think like us, of, of, who are allied to our community, to stay engaged and to keep their finger on the pulse here. Um, and so uh, th- there will be more uh, more news coming. Uh, watch the media. In addition, if anybody wants to contact me for clarification or to for support, it's Brian E. McCabe at gmail.com. It's fairly easy. Brian with an I, E. McCabe at gmail.com. One thing I'd like to say to people at home in Ireland, if they have any opportunity at all, a very dear friend of mine, Damien Dempsey, uh, is going up in the Abbey Theater uh, January 13th, and he's going to be in a run uh, up until uh, February 18th. We'll be over. It was my Christmas gift to my wife and my two youngest kids. Gene is 20, Josie 17, and my wife Joan and I are going over for the last performance at the Abbey on February 18th. Um, we'll have a massive party. But if anybody can get to see that, it's it's phenomenal. It's directed by Connor McPherson. It's called uh, Damien Dempsey Tales from the Holy Well. Um, and it's just Damien uh, at a piano doing some songs, but also talking about his life, how he became the person he became uh, growing up in, uh, in working-class Dublin. So uh, it's a, it's something if anybody has an opportunity to see, they won't be disappointed. That's great. Well, Brian, we we look forward to uh, hearing, you know, tracking the progress of the Historical Society. Martin and I volunteer to put on a uh, production there of a, a live podcast recording, bring you back on stage. So we're already working on the, uh, the calendar of uh, events for you. <laughs> look. Happy New Year, man. Things are going to get better. We're going to keep, we're going to keep focused on this. We have commitments from the AG's office. I'm very comfortable with it. The new board, um, figure a six month period of time. Liz Stack from the Irish American Heritage Museum in Albany. Uh, her, her skill set as part of the interim board is very important. Um, and any other three gentlemen who are engaged are professionals in reorganizing organizations of this, of this nature. Um, and then we'll be looking to actually uh, have a new board created within uh, in six months' time. But we will keep everybody's attention focused on it. And if there are any reasons to be um, concerned about the way things are going, we'll we'll bring a we'll shine a light on it. And we can have you back on too. Even a, even a guy like Peter Quinn has made two appearances on Irish Stew. Yeah, well, Peter, you can't have a better person than Peter, my dear friend. I love him. Great man. So with that, on behalf of our listeners, Brian McCabe, I appreciate you coming on and telling us a bit about your life story and the latest happenings with the American Artists Historical Society. Thank you, and we wish you all the best for 2023. Thank you, gentlemen. You're great. And I appreciate your friendship through the years. And I wish you nothing but the best with the Irish Stew Podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you, Martin. Well, John, it was great to have Brian McCabe on the podcast. As you know, I had some involvement with the American Irish Historical Society when Brian was serving there as the chairman, along with Sophie Colgan, who was handling communications. And they were a great team at that institution or were kind of beginning to light the place up only to be ultimately stymied as Brian related. And for me, that was really disappointing because 
literally just around the corner from where I live. And I felt quite privileged to have that in my backyard as an Irish person living in New York. I wanted Brian to kind of paint the picture of, of what the building and what the location is. I mean, this is absolutely prime New York real estate in a beautiful, ornate, well-preserved townhouse. And I, before I was too much involved with Irish things here in New York, I would go buy it and say, how did the Irish ever end up on Fifth Avenue with this gorgeous mansion, essentially? So it is a rare gem that must be not only preserved, but revitalized. I look at it in a way right now as a, a building in search of a mission. And when you have people like Brian McCabe, Sophie, and other the other talent, uh, I know you yourself were in there contributing as well, Martin. I'm hopeful that this gem will be not only preserved, but I mentioned in the beginning, you know, like an uncut gem, meaning we haven't even seen the potential of this place yet. And, and maybe that's going to be a very good Irish story heading forward. Yeah. And as I mentioned, although I used the wrong geometric shape in the course of our conversation, I am looking forward to the American Irish Historical Society taking its place in the quadrangle of great Irish American institutions, not triangle. So that would be Luxman House, the Irish Rep, the Irish Arts Centre, and hopefully now the newly restored Historical Society. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Cahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. Music